The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deeg speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. My name is Charlie Clawson and my guest this week is Matt Stewart. He's the host of the podcast Do Go On and Primates. He's also a fantastic comedian who until very recently was touring. Matt, the, the last time we spoke, you had just completed a tour of Queensland. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I was lucky. I was in Queensland while Melbourne was locked down, I think. But um, yeah, since I've been home, it's it's been all locked down ever since. You, I mean, you'd be you'd understand. You've been locked down probably through most of this as well, right, Charlie? <laughs> no, no. I, uh, I we're just saying off air. I have managed to escape uh, the worst of the lockdowns, apart from when it initially kicked off last year, and then I was actually early in April. There was a lockdown in Melbourne in April, and I just missed that one. And then I was packing up my apartment in Sydney when their lockdown started and just missed that. And I was like, oh, like I'm just getting away by the skin of my teeth. And then arrived in uh, Queensland and walked into a lockdown. But thankfully, that was only very short. Um, you know, we were just sort of talking off air about having this kind of survivor's guilt because I'm from Melbourne originally, but I've lived in Sydney for the better part of 20 years. So I have affection for both cities and have friends and family in both cities. And uh, you just see what's going on. And it's hard to, like, I think six months ago, we were saying it's hard to fathom what Victorians have gone through. And one day Victorians will be able to talk about it. You know, one day, <laughs> like PTSD, they'll be able to talk about it. But for now, they just need our, our understanding and support, you know. And now it feels like, well, at least half the country is going to have an understanding of what it's like. What's your what's your experience been, Matt? I don't know. I think it's I've, – I've been okay. I should say for the listeners, you did say you, you don't like talking about it. So I kind of threw you under the bus a bit there. Like, That's all um, right. The brag. I think you – well, you can't not talk about it. On TOEFOP, I apologize to listeners because it was a three-week period where when it opened, I just went on these COVID rants. <laughs> and then I was like, maybe people are actually tuning into podcasts to get a bit of escapism <laughs> yeah. from that. But the feedback I've been getting from people is it is quite nice to hear people talking about it. So you don't have that experience of, am I going crazy or is this like the fucking worst experience of my life? Yeah, totally. I think I've... I've- felt like i've been riding the roller coaster a bit sometimes i'm feeling hopeful and uh you know like there's some good news and it feels like oh you know this is just an opportunity and lockdown to focus on some different things for a bit yeah. you know shrink your world down that's when i'm going well and other times you know you're kind of full of despair and struggling to get out of bed but it's good to have a mix i guess I think so. Well, it's, it's, you're right. It is a roller coaster. Do you find that it's creeping into like your dreams? <laughs> are you finding that you're having, because I'm finding that my dreams are now sort of becoming not very subtle <laughs> metaphors <laughs> for what we're all going through. Like if I was an emo year 12 student who was writing breakup poetry, it's that level of sophistication with my metaphor dreams. Like, oh, I'm imprisoned <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, right. Oh, that's beautiful, Charlie. You should write, you should start a dream journal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't know what this could turn into. This could be a, a play, something like well, that. I was wondering if that's, you know, 
at, at, when this all kicked off and when it was more of a novelty, the uh, the novel coronavirus in 2020, <laughs> I was like, oh, there must be a bunch of screenwriters and, and writers out there and probably comedians writing material about this stuff because this, you know, there's just so much to kind of dig into. But you wonder now if 18 months into it, everyone's like, you know what, fuck this. No one yeah. wants to hear me, at least not for like 20 years. We can look back. In 20 years and, and have all those kind. It's like Vietnam. We didn't, like, Platoon didn't come out till 20 years after Vietnam. <laughs> right. right? Well, I, I, yeah, I'll be interested to see the next time Melbourne Comedy Festival is able to happen. Hopefully next year. I don't think it really happened this year. I mean, the festival happened, but it didn't really happen where every show was about COVID. But I have a funny right. feeling the next, uh, every second show will have COVID in the title. Like, if you're, I don't know if you were around a few years ago when every show seemed to be a Breaking Bad pun. No, <laughs> for some reason, uh, I bet you yeah, this time it'll be COVID. Um, which, yeah, I don't know why anyone would want to go and see a COVID related comedy show, but well, I guess it's that fine line, isn't it, where you need to acknowledge what the what's going on in the world, but you don't want to tell people what they already know. I mean, I'm having this discussion with um, a few producers I'm working with at the moment on something I'm writing where. You know, it's just a, it's like just like a domestic drama, really, about you know this couple. And I'm like, but do we acknowledge COVID, even though it doesn't really impact? There are certain things like you know, do they wear masks when they go to the shops? Or, and it is yeah. a discussion we sort of had to have because it's like, well, are we reminding people or are we just being realistic? Because on one hand, I'm like, well, you should you know reflect the world that you live in. But on the other hand, is this escapism? Do we want to be showing people the world they live in? Yeah, and, it, and does it date it to the time? Uh, this is what yeah. I was thinking about early on, which probably doesn't, it's not relevant anymore, but early on I'm like, you oh, know, if you record something now that's, <laughs> even I remember saying in podcast, being like, if you're listening to this in the future, there was a bit of a virus that went around. I don't know if you'll still know about this. It was called COVID. Uh, if you're listening in a few years, you probably haven't even heard of it. But now it's like, obviously, everyone will always know what COVID-19 <laughs> was. It's now big enough that it'll be... They'll be like SBS, like <laughs> when we're like uh, boomer age. Yeah, that all the SBS documentaries won't be about Hitler. They'll be about COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah. that's what I reckon too, and that's why, you know, when that Vietnam trend happened in the late eighties, when it was like born on the Fourth of July and Platoon and Tour of Duty, and and it was always accompanied by the music of the time, which was like you know this really tumultuous time in history, but some fantastic music was played. I'm like, well, what's going to be the soundtrack of COVID? Like, yeah. who are the, is it K-pop? <laughs> I mean, is that going to be the accompanying? K-pop. Yeah. That Lord album seems to be getting a lot of chat. I don't know if people are, it seems to be getting negative chat, but the, have you yeah. you know that Lord released an album? Well, it's got I an saw iconic cover anyway. The cover, yeah. Look, I'm, I'm aware of the cover and, I saw that there's a lot of people disappointed that she went down the path of, of showing her ass. But look, I'm staying on the Gold Coast at the moment, Matt, and uh, it seems that everyone's showing their ass. Like, yeah. I don't think Lord is, I don't think you could accuse her of, you know, using sex to sell when it feels like everyone is showing their ass at the moment. I don't know when it became the norm, but it's like everywhere you go, it's just ass, left, right, and center. Really? Ass yeah. out on the Gold Coast? I was actually asking my my wife yesterday because we're at the beach. We took our kid to the beach and I was like, on the Gold Coast, I thought I'd see more topless, but there's not that many topless. They're very conservative up top, but it's It's all bottomless. Yeah, it's all bottomless. (laughs) It's as far as the eye can see. Bloody hell. 
<laughs> that's it. That's an interesting. What a, are we talking uh, ladies and gents? What's going La- on? Oh, mainly ladies, mainly ladies, but ladies of all shapes and sizes and ages too. That's the other thing is like I've seen some, you know, women who I would have thought, oh, you know, maybe they're sort of getting a bit more conservative in, in their in their twilight years, but they're like, no, no, I want to get those buns. Those buns need some sun on them. Yeah. <laughs> sun's out, buns out. Sure. Sun's out, buns out. That's the new line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's probably, it's a bit more full on when it is, uh, men with the with the uh, like top on yeah and no pants on it's a yeah. it's one of the stranger combinations i think when the well, dick's remember- out but the the chest is covered <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i remember when i first moved to sydney from melbourne and uh went to bondi beach for the first time with a friend of mine and we were just so like blown away by just like how nude it was like people were just out on bondi and dudes are in budgie smugglers and girls are topless and you know, we were these pale like Victorians who just arrived, and so we we thought, well, you know, we got to like, you know, went in Rome, and so we went to the like the 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 uh, the, the surf diving ski, and we bought ourselves some speedos. And I remember, like, so there we were, like, tanning ourselves in our speedos. And I remember I was dating this girl at the time, and we just sort of hooked up. And I remember when she saw me naked for the first time, she burst out laughing because I had this bikini tan line, like a really, just like a really skimpy bikini tan line. And she was like, I don't know about that. I think, uh, I think you should go back to board shorts. Yeah. Did, did the relationship recover? Obviously it didn't. Well, we're still friends uh, today, but the relationship uh, did not last. I'm not sure if the bikini tan line <laughs> was the breaking point. Uh, it's a, that crisp line, there's something about it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> you see, cyclists have it a lot. They have like that real crisp line because they wear those tight cyclist shorts. Yeah. And they have, it's like a real uh, crisp. Line separating the. Are you talking the about pale. just regulation bike shorts, like the cover the quads to the. Yeah, hips, I guess right? so. You'll see them in the summertime. You'll know the cyclists out there on the beach. Really, I've never, I've never thought to look, or <laughs> well, maybe I haven't. Just I don't realize what I was <laughs> I looking at. I, I don't know why I have this knowledge. Well, I don't know any of uh, any of those sort of hardcore cyclists, but it's, uh, maybe. Maybe this is what's been happening in my COVID dreams, Charlie. Maybe yeah. this isn't a, a, <laughs> sunbathing cyclists. Yeah. I know when I first moved to uh, Sydney as well, I could always tell the British uh, who had just arrived from England recently because generally they had like that shaved head and they would be sunburnt in a V from like the bottom yeah. of their neck and then sunburnt from the elbows down. And I was like, what is that pattern? And then you would say, oh, when they're wearing their soccer jersey. Like, that's when they wear that out in the sun for the first time. Yeah. And then they get burnt, and then you pull it off. Right. You've got a perfect Manchester United, Dan. It was a, and it was always the shaved head. Why was that such an English thing? This, um, I don't know. Like, is it... Was it... Uh, I'm Look, I'm maybe I'm a, I'm a bit older than you, and I'm thinking that sort of late 90s, Eric Cantona was like the biggest right. footballer in the world, and he had a shaved head with a pop collar. So you'd see a lot of dudes out and about in you know wearing a man U top with a with a pop collar and shaved head but look could have been that could have been david beckham oh you know, but, yeah but beck's also experimented with lots of different looks didn't he he did yeah the faux hawk was big for a while because of him 
Well, do you think he's personally responsible? Like, you know, we've talked about this on um, my other podcast, Two Guys, One Cup, uh, about, you know, old school footballers, especially for the team, you know, we supported. Like, we've had some classic looking old school footballers at the Saints, you know. <laughs> yeah. We had like Jeff Cunningham and Jody Arnold, real old school looking dudes. And you could always pick a footballer because they looked like a proper bogan. But it's like when David Beckham came along, and started like you know you know like you know manicuring himself and you know sleeve tattoos and stuff like he completely changed not just in his code but all like sporting codes don't you reckon yeah you reckon it was he so when was his time it was sort of late 90s and late the 2000s. late 90s yeah 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 who else would it have been cuz well i think you you can sort of split it into kind of like two different categories where like, you know, basketball and NBA's sort of had their look. And you could sort of say, well, Dennis Rodman brought the rock star look, you know, the kind of tattoos and the dyed hair and the piercings and all that kind of stuff. And so that, I think, is kind of a separate look. But specifically for football, because footballers in any code generally big, beefy, you know, toothless blokes, right? Yeah. You know, because that's a, like a contact sport and they're just those kind of... But then he came along, and I also think it's you know it sort of was around the time where AFL, you know, training standards changed and it became more professional. So guys started getting more leaner bodies that kind of like David Beckham, right. you know, running more kilometers kind of bodies. So and they had like, more well, cash to too, more cash. But you know, if you look at the way players dress. I'm always like amazed when you see like you know footage of players arriving at training and stuff, and they like they're kitted out in like the best gear. And if you think back to Plugger, you know, like he would rock up in his Ute and a flannel to training. Yeah, wearing sweat hog tracksuit yes. pants. Ah, <laughs> uh, sweat hog. Is that label still around? I don't think it is. I used to go down to the sweat hog seconds in Morabin all the time. Yeah, and, uh, felt like a king My- leaving that joint with a sweat hog double. I remember my um, all I wanted for my eleventh birthday was uh, I was a huge fan of um, the Beverly Hills Cop franchise, and I loved Axel Foley's Letterman jacket, you know. Yeah. The, and I remember seeing one at like a department store or something. It was probably like a three hundred dollar jacket, like proper leather sleeves with the letters and stuff. And I sort of pointed it out to my mum, and I was like, "Could I have that for my birthday?" And she didn't say yes or no. So I had a little question: my maybe I'm going to get it. My birthday arrives. It's a big soft packet. I'm like, oh my god! I got the jacket. I opened it up. It was a sweat hog Letterman jacket. <laughs> yeah, with vinyl, vinyl, white vinyl sleeves, <laughs> which oh. peeled, split and peeled after like the third wear. Oh. So by the end of it, there's absolutely no vinyl on it. It was just that kind of sticky, kind of dry lacquer on underneath. That's a real sweet story. Did you did you tell your mum or did you? No, yeah. you can't say to your mum, you got me the completely wrong product. Oh, well, I I wish I could agree, but I had a very oh, really? similar story, and I think about it on and off all the time, where I should have reacted like you. Thanks, mum, I really appreciate this birthday present. It's not quite, you wouldn't say it, not quite what I asked for, but it, you, I can tell that you had a go, and it's real sweet and nice. I I was, at the time, I, I think it was uh, Shaq was in there, you know, at the height, playing for Orlando Mad- Magic. Orlando, yeah. And I said to mum... Don't I, fake the fuck. Don't fake the funk on a nasty dunk. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, don't fake the was funk. It, <laughs> is I, that what it was? That, that, is that was a, his password to get into the Reebok oh, secret so agent good. group or whatever it was. Don't fake, the fu- don't fake the funk on a nasty dunk. I reckon <laughs> that's it. I haven't thought of that 
since that day. Um, that ad came out. <laughs> so I so I said to my I'd love an Orlando hat. I don't know if you remember these ones. They were like white with a blue brim, and they had so yeah. I think it was like black pinstripe or something like that, and I had magic, mm. you know, with the star That's or right, whatever. Yeah. And I um so I asked for that, and uh, the day came around, and Mum gave me a southeast Melbourne magic hat. <laughs> <laughs> From from Sweat Hog, <laughs> and I and I said to her, I said, "Oh, this isn't the right one. I wanted Orlando Magic." And you could see she was sort of like, you know, she tried. Why don't I just swallow? I don't understand why I didn't just think I didn't have the know the etiquette of just saying thanks so much. And I think about it all the time. It breaks my heart whenever I think about it. I've brought it up to her. She has no memory of it at all, but. Um, my, um, my, cause I wasn't the youngest of nine kids. And so it got to a point with my mum with birthdays and stuff where she was like, Oh, like I just can't be bothered. Cause you know, she had like nine kids. So she's having to think of nine presents every year for constantly shifting demographics. So it's yeah. not just like, Oh, okay. I know what this person likes. And then you age it up. You know, you got six girls and three boys and then, you know, the boys are into Transformers one day, but now they're into footy the next year. So it got to a point where she just gave up and I'll never forget the most kind of like arbitrary effort she ever put into a present was my sister had gone to uh, Queensland, I think it's QUT or uh, some college in Queensland to study animation. Um, but she had been out of that course for like three or four years and it was her birthday and mum got her a DVD of the Robin Williams film Flubber. <laughs> And we were like, I remember my sister opening it and she just sort of stared at it for a moment and we couldn't work out. Like my sister had never really been a a Robin Williams fan. Flubber wasn't like a favorite in the house or anything. What's this? Like it wasn't even like a new copy of Flubber. Flubber had been in and out of cinemas for about five years. But my mum saw that it was a CGI character on the front. It was like, well, she studied animation. She must like animation. Here you go. Here's Flubber. That's great. Uh, what I know about an animation is flubber. <laughs> and uh, probably now, browsing through the bargain bin at JB Hi-Fi. Yeah, I think, no, I, it's probably one of those purchases, you know, when you're at the post office, you're like, oh, fuck, yes. I haven't got anything. And, you, and you're like, post. that's a post office purchase. Yeah, post. Now, I've, I found out the definition. I've just been on Reddit. Uh, uh, don't fake the funk on a nasty dunk. What does it mean? Okay, so in layman's terms, faking the funk is to act similar to someone you're not just to impress others. So, okay, I'm assuming in the great realm of basketball, one that is riddled with questionable catchy phrases, one can only conclude that faking the funk on a nasty dunk would be something similar to going up with a dunk that is not representative (laughs) of your own character. As one scholar describes, faking the funk is exuding bravado that is not commensurate with your qualifications. Right. Okay, so Shaq was just doling out some wisdom there. I, well, look, I think that's something to live by, you know. Not faking the funk. Never the fake the dunk. funk on the nasty dunk. And the nasty dunk could be anything, you know, day to day. doesn't have to be Do basketball think- related. Next time you're hosting like an open mic or something and you've got a kid who's going up on stage for the first <laughs> time, can you just stop him yeah, look, <laughs> before he hits the stage? Mate, just, uh, just got to drop this wisdom on you before you go up there. Please <laughs> don't fake the funk on a nasty dunk, young man. <laughs> just pat him on the back <laughs> off you go <laughs> you know i think you know what i'm talking about yeah have you w- were you ever given any advice when you were starting out in comedy that was absolutely useless 
Ah, uh, useless advice. Oh, I mean, there's funny advice you get sometimes about um, what, what you should wear. One guy once told me, if you ever do a gig in the country, and this, maybe this is true, because I, I still think mm. about it. If you ever do a gig in the country, you got to wear a collared shirt. you got to <laughs> wear a collared shirt. They won't respect you if you're wearing a T-shirt in the country. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Well, I guess, like, if... It depends where you're playing, right? Yeah. Like you're doing like an RSL or something like that. Yeah, he's just Maybe like any, be wearing any a country gig at all. Could be at a pub or whatever. He said. Have you ever felt a gig in the country has gone badly because you have chosen not to wear a collar? Uh, I, I mean, I'd love to be able to blame it on things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. It's the collar. I should have known. <laughs> just bombing hard. Oh, yep. Yep, yep, yep. I knew it. I risk. I flirted with my form. Whoa. T-shirt. Damn it. Yeah, I no, that I don't think I've ever thought that way. It's normally like, oh, I needed to be funnier tonight. That's normally what I would yeah. blame it on. And obviously, like, do you do a quick scan of the crowd and, and try and profile them to say, oh, this looks like a kind of crowd where this is... Or you're listening to the axon before you, aren't you? And going, <laughs> right, okay, that's what's working. Yeah, that's you normally get a pretty good clue. From the acts before. If you're hosting, you don't, you're sort of figuring that out for yourself when you're out there. Yeah. But <laughs> I'd love it if you turned up to every gig with just two shirts one <laughs> yeah. with a collar, one without. I think, well, I mean, the real, that's when you get to a real top echelon level. Uh, imagine yeah. Will probably works that way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> two or three, just has a like a bag of shirts. He's got a polo shirt. He's got a skivvy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's got a low slung V. <laughs> exactly. Some sort of tweed. Jacket, sports coat, yeah, he'd do it all. Uh, what's your uh, what's your stage attire? Do you have like? Because I know Will has this philosophy that it's kind of he treats it like it's work. So he will, you know, he will dress up to go on stage. Do you have like things that you prefer to wear, or something that you know you fits in better with your, uh, for lack of a better term, comedy persona, or is it just what you're wearing? I, I yeah, I probably haven't put enough thought into it, but I normally. I tend to wear, you know, jeans and a and a t shirt, often with a whoa, shirt. Whoa, whoa, over whoa! Slow down. Let yeah. me just let me get <laughs> this radical I know. combination of clothes. I'm, I'm changing things up uh, in comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Which comedian was he? Well, he's the one in the jeans and the t shirt. Oh, that guy. Yeah. So I like to. Uh... Well, because, you know, a lot of people will try and dress up, you know, your Will Anderson types, uh, and I'm just sort of subverting um, what he does. Well, you've got there. the beard, so you've got an identity <laughs> right. already. Like, people are going to be able to describe you because of the beard, and so you don't want to overdo it. Like, if you've got that beard, and then you're also wearing, like, a three-piece tweed suit with a fob watch. Yeah, the right. <laughs> you go got Oliver like, Clark sort of got- level. Yeah, this guy's just trying a little too hard. I because I, I have heard that as well. Like you got to respect the audience by wearing a suit or whatever. It just it would mm. feel strange. It would feel like I was doing a character or something if I was wearing a suit. I don't yeah. look good in a suit. It would. Is that right? Oh uh, yeah, I don't. You've never gone to a wedding or anything like that and like, oh man, this actually. Oh, I'm all right. I, 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 could, I, I could rock this. I like wearing a suit. I just uh, I don't know something about the beard. I think makes it. Uh, it looks like a weird combination it always well, you look like, like a Mu- mumford and sons or something i imagine <laughs> well you just look like a guy especially the the quality suits that i i, I wear yeah it, it just looks like a guy who's found a suit it doesn't look like right. a guy who 
<laughs> who owns the suit? There's a guy to a guy who just finds suits. Yeah, that's, well, a, that's a class of individual. Yeah, yeah it's right. a strong look, the found suit look. Oh, you could, you'd also, people might mistake you for a time traveler. It's like this guy has clearly traveled from Victor- Victorian era <laughs> yeah. to pass on some wisdom. That's true, yeah. I think, no, maybe you're right. Maybe I just got to believe in myself more. I think that's probably often uh, pulling off clothes is just uh, believing in it. Did you go to a school where you had to wear like uh, like a tie and stuff, like yeah. the, uh, the uniform? Tie and, right. tie and blazer. Yeah. And I used to find that like such a pain in the ass. I mean, I think part of the reason I've never really had an office job is the idea of like shaving and putting on a tie. Like my last couple of years of high school when I started like growing a beard and stuff, it was just nightmarish. Like I shaving my neck, I would always have like blood stains on yeah. my white collar because I'd like be shaving my neck. And my school had very strict kind of hair length protocols as well. Right. Like your hair couldn't touch your collar and all that kind of stuff. And I even remember like the fir- one of the first jobs I had out of high school was working at Priceline. And I don't know if you've ever worked at Priceline before, but they, I wouldn't be surprised to find <laughs> Do out. Do you have if, to check that often? Is there, there's that many what? people have worked at Priceline. I don't know if you've worked at Priceline. Before. Well, it's just that this experience was so specific. I, I, I mean, I'd be interested to know if someone else who worked at Priceline had this because they have like an enforced fun kind of protocol. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like they have mandated trivia nights uh-huh. and staff parties and catch ups that. You have to attend. It's not like it's not just like, hey, the staff all get along and we're all going to go karaoke on Friday. Like, it's from head office. They're organising a trivia night, and it sort of struck me that maybe it's run by like Jehovah's Witnesses or yeah, it's got a some kind of religious sect because it. it has a it did really had a culty feel to it. Because I remember when I started there, and everyone had sort of bought in. Like all the people I was working with, and we're all like you know sort of high school or university age. And they had all bought in big time and they and they did have that kind of happy clappers kind of young Christian sort of vibe about them. And I remember they're like, you know, it's trivia night on Wednesday. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not really, I don't, I don't really like trivia nights. And they're like, no, but you've got to come along. And I'm like, no, no, I just, I, I just work here to make money. Like I'm not, I'm, I have plenty of friends. I'm not looking to make any more. And there was this constant like passive aggressive pressure to go to these things. Oh, and they weren't, the you other, weren't getting paid to go. It wasn't on the clock. No. No, no. It that was seems just weird to be made to go to a, a work function. All right, I say it's not that you're made to go, but they there was an expectation that you would attend, and they would put enough pressure on you that I think that you know there would be a lot of people going to these things. We thought you're a team player, Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Stuff, yeah. All that kind of stuff. It's going to have a lot of fun. You know, it's uh, if you want to move up in the in the price line uh, hierarchy, this is a good place to network. A good place to start. Because I remember the manager of the store um, started off, he was really buddy-buddy, kind of like a cult leader. And then when it became clear that I was not taking part in these mandated (laughs) activities, his attitude changed. And I remember one day I turned up to work and I hadn't hadn't shaved for like a day or two. So just a light kind of stubble, but not, you know, and he was pulled me aside and was like, what's this? Pointed to my face. Oh, man. And I was like, I wasn't sure what he was talking about. And he was and he was and he was like, you know, mate, if I have to shave to come to work, so do you. And I was like, oh, and I said, well, can I can I borrow something? We're in price line. Can I borrow some of your products? I'll go to the kitchen, I'll go to the break room now and shave. And he was like, no, no, no. And then after that it was just downhill where 
everything about my appearance became an issue where it was like my uniform wasn't right. The pants I was wearing weren't right. Cause you had to have like black slacks and black shoes and I was wearing trainers or something like that. And I, that was when I started to realize, Oh man, I need to find a career in which <laughs> I don't have to follow a uniform policy. Oh, clever. Cause I just, I'm just not very good at it. I had, I had a very similar experience at working at a supermarket. It was the same deal. Yeah. Black pants, black shoes, shirt and it was in a time like the late 90s early 2000s australian society it was got to be clean shaven it was important for some reason mm. which it isn't at all anymore it was wasn't it but back then for some reason you had to be clean shaven um yeah at, and no visible tattoos as that's well. that's right and all of that stuff doesn't matter anymore like cops they and can now cops, even have cops with beards tats and tats and, yeah that was like unheard of back then, um, but you, yeah, you, yeah, I don't know why that. Well, I think designer stubble. Can't remember that was a thing, a, a phrase. Designer yeah. stubble, and then, it, and then beards were okay. Beards used to be very rebellious. I think for a while. I remember I was. Um, I went to an audition once for. Do you remember that show, Sea Patrol? Yes, it was like a. It was like a military Lisa McCune, show, and right? um, yeah, that's right. And uh, I had a callback for one of the roles. And again, it was a similar to my Priceline experience where I turned up with some stubble and the uh, casting director said, oh, I'm not going to let you in to see the producers yet because you got stubble and the military have a very distinct, <laughs> you know, no facial hair policy. And I was like, again, so I had to leave this audition, go to a 7-Eleven, buy one of those cheap Bic razors, cut myself to shit, <laughs> you know, look like Norman Gunston, come back into the room with toilet paper all over my face to do this audition. But then I remember watching the news and it's like, They've all got beards and stubble and stuff. And there's no, you don't see soldiers I, like. And it, what what is it with casting agents and and uh, you know producing that? There's just no imagination for what what would this guy look like with a millimeter less facial hair? You know, you can't picture that. That's always my argument. Is generally they have a headshot. Yeah, that's them. right. And in that headshot, you're clean shaven. And it's like, is it that hard for you to look <laughs> at the photo you've taken today and then look at the headshot and go with beard, without beard? I mean, one of the earliest arguments I ever had, and I don't want to make this sound like I'm constantly butting heads with casting agents. I don't. It's normally a pretty, a pretty easy process. But there was, uh, I, they made this show. I think it was an American show, but they were casting out here, and it was called. I can't remember what it was, but it was basically Tarzan in modern times. It was like Tarzan goes to uni. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> the name of the show. Oh my god, this would be a great subject for primates. Fantastic. Tarzan goes to university. Yeah, did that get made? Uh, yeah, I think they did. With Travis, you know Travis Fimmel, he's in Vikings now. He ended up playing Tarzan. But I remember I was only like nineteen or twenty at the time, and I read this. I read. I got this. I got this audition, and I read it, and. You know, the idea was that Tarzan had been pulled from the jungle, you know, and then taken to New York to attend university or something like that. And so when I turned up to the audition, I turned up with a beard because I'm like, well, I don't imagine there's a lot of razor blades or mirrors in the jungle. Like Tarzan's probably got a beard. And when I walked in, the casting agent was furious. Like she wasn't just, oh, hey, you know, I think the producers are perfect. She was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? What am I doing? She's like, Tarzan doesn't have a beard. And I'm like, who says Tarzan doesn't have a beard? And she's like, he doesn't have a beard. He's never had a beard. And I'm like, I've never seen a Tarzan movie or a TV show. I said, isn't he been living in the jungle for 19 years? I'm assuming if I'd been living in the jungle for 19 years, I'd have a beard. That's <laughs> it. it became this Has that ever been questioned before? Because his hair's grown. Like he, 
He's got long hair. He's got long hair. Because he can't get it cut. But for some reason, no long beard. Yeah, you're right. It's weird. That's a bloody... It's bullshit. That is rubbish. You should have got the role. Forget about... You should have got it there and <laughs> then. Travis Fimmel. Yeah, just on logic. Yeah. They should, if they cast roles based on logical arguments, then I would be Tarzan. When you... So, you know how you you suggested to your manager at Priceline that you'd go shave there and then? <laughs> I, yeah. I had that same thing happen. I was trolley boy at Safeway. And I had I had a like a, a, a you know a bit a little growth, and the the store manager came up and he he go he said the same thing. What's that? Pointed at my face, and I and I was also I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? And he goes, you can't, you got to be clean shaven to work here. He said, go home now. You're not coming back until you're clean shaven. And I was you know wow. I was like 15. I was shitting myself. I'm like I don't. I don't <laughs> Well, I've made this old man really upset. So I, I bought a packet of uh, Bic razors and I went down into the into the bathrooms and the you know the staff bathroom and dry yeah. shave with a oh my God. with the Bic razor, absolutely just shredded my face <laughs> and went back to work. And um, yeah, I I don't know what I, I I don't I still don't understand. I don't think that would happen anymore. I don't think any sort of length of beard is is seen as being unprofessional anymore, is it? I don't know. I mean, I'd definitely not like for professional athletes and stuff. But maybe I imagine if you're um if you work in a like a five star hotel or a restaurant or something where it's a premium service, they would they would have the right to and would have an expectation on presentation, like you know. The women would have to be in full makeup. The men would have to be either clean shaven or what I imagine the argument would be was you need to have like a manicured right. manicured facial hair or you need to be clean shaven. You can't look like you've just come in from, you know, like a three-day bend or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Which for me- When like, you put it like that, that sounds fair enough. <laughs> but I, but I, I imagine you and I are quite similar and we're kind of astute gentlemen and it doesn't take- like I can clean, I can use it, do a, like a uh, straight razor shave, and then three days later, it's back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and part of the reason I always have facial hair is that um, when it when I do shave, it's impossible. My wife will not kiss me or come near me, and my child, I'll shred her, you know, her vulnerable cheeks because you know that stubble in the first three or four days is like sandpaper. So I generally always have you know, to some degree, a beard going because it's softer than the alternative. Yeah. That's, well, I mean, that's something that people don't appreciate, the effort you're going to to soften your face. <laughs> well, I imagine the reason your beard is so long is because you're just constantly passion by Yeah, that's right. And you just want to make sure it's a, it's a soft, <laughs> soft landing, landing roll, there, That's right. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's exactly it. It's a, it's a babe-related beard for sure. No, but I, I think I shaved it off in one of the first lockdowns. I, I think I'll... I'm probably going to do it again soon, I reckon. All the way off? Oh, uh, probably. I'll keep the mustache or something. I was going to say, just looking at the Zoom now, I reckon you with a handlebar mustache would look fantastic. Oh, I might, yeah, I might go I with the handlebars, got, yeah. I think it's good. I think it would be a good look for you. I don't know if you – I mean, you could maybe keep a bitty bit as well, but I think you could easily rock just the big, thick mo. Have you – The Hulk Hogan style yes, mo. Yes, the Mer- Mervyn Hughes. Yeah, definitely. Have you seen uh, Fred Durst has gone for the handlebar lately? 
you seen his makeover? Funny you, should, uh, funny you should bring that up because, yeah, someone uh, – we talked about it on TOEFOP a couple of weeks ago and I don't know what happened, but it has sent me on a Fred Durst. Me too. I've been oh, – really? I've gone down the biggest rabbit hole. rabbit hole. The last few weeks I've been – and it, you know how algorithms on your – from your, like, your yeah. news and so everything's coming up Durst. New everything's coming up new metal. I, my entire YouTube feed is all new metal. I even watched a video a couple of days ago, which was an oral history of new metal. <laughs> so I was quite interested to know like where it all came from because I so the Fred we we did the app about Fred Durst and Limp Biscuit, and then I just started researching stuff, and I found this podcast um, on Rolling Stone that was all about. Um, uh, 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 Limp Biscuit. It was the journalist arguing the relative merits. The Rolling of Limp Stones Biscuit. one. Have you heard this podcast? It- yeah, have you heard? Well, it? I listened to it the other day. It's part of my deep dive. <laughs> yeah, I've, anything that comes up, I've listened to or watched. I don't know what it is. I don't know if this is a lockdown. So well, it's funny. obviously not a lockdown symptom because you're doing it in the free world. It is crazy that you and I have been <laughs> on the same journey. So I heard that. And then I was like, maybe I should reevaluate like Limp Bizkit because I never, you know, I mean, I know what everyone knows about Limp Bizkit and, and the, you know, the, the five major songs. And so I've started listening to more and more. And then I'm like, who is this Fred Durst character? Because one of the things they argue in that um, Rolling Stone uh, podcast is that, well, Fred Durst is a character. Like the red cap was just like he was playing a character because he was not really young enough to be this kind of young Brady skater guy. He was in his 30s by the time you know, Limp Biscuit broke big. And so he's playing this kind of character. And so then I started going, so is the whole thing just a joke? Like is the biggest band in new metal was the whole thing just kind of like a self kind of mocking uh, act. Is that what they were? Yeah. I, found, I thought that was interesting as well. I didn't realize that it was sort of a bit of a character and or that he was that old at the time. And um, <laughs> he was so old. Yeah. Cause it, R- r- rapping about my generation. <laughs> I thought, because listening to the uh, some of the music again, I'm like, some, like it is, because uh, funnily enough, I, I think what started me on it was when I was uh, doing shows on the Gold Coast, the promoter up there, he loves new metal, and he, so he right. uses it as your walk on music and this sort of stuff, and I, so uh, driving home from one of the gigs, he's playing it with his top down, his his convertible Mini Cooper, wow. and I'm and I'm sort of like s- s- sort of shrinking down in the seat, <laughs> going, I don't know if I want to be, <laughs> you know, this convertible Mini's flying past with Limp Biscuit blasting out. I'm like, I don't know if I want to be associated with this. And then, but then the, he sort of was talking about. It. He's like, Nah, it's, you know, I think he was he likes it. He reckons it's more self aware than I think I realised. And but at, as um the gigs are going on and he's playing it. Uh, the music to walk on. I'm like, this is great walk on music. They sort of blast of guitar and um and bass. It's it's really good. But yeah, the lyrics are almost universally awful. You know, yeah, the rhymes and everything. But it's I don't know. It, it has I've sort of come back around to it a little bit. Well, I think like Will, when we were talking about it, he said it's great highlights packages music. Yeah, like he talked about the wrestling and the footy and stuff. Like when you're watching a highlights package, yeah. It's great. It just sort of matches that high octane, but it's kind of brainless kind of loud music. But the thing that they talked about in the podcast that made me go, oh, yeah, is they said that, you know, for all Limp Biscuits railing against like NSYNC and boy bands, essentially they were a boy band. Yeah. They were just like a hard rock boy band. And like each 
member of the band sort of was identifiable, you know, as a different kind of character in the same way boy bands are. And consequently, they had this huge female following. So I started watching all these like, you know, Limp Bizkit live videos. And yeah, there's like heaps of women in the in the crowd. And I was like, I, I mean, I just don't remember any of this at the time. I just remember sort of dismissing them. I mean, you, you realize they're a huge band and stuff, but then it's like, there was this brief moment in time where this one particular genre of music was just kind of hugely popular. And then almost as quickly as it started, you know, like say 97 to 2003, then it was just gone again. Yeah, it was quick, wasn't it? And I, I didn't realize they... It wasn't like they um, just got less popular. They pretty much stopped making music. They yeah they had two massive albums, and then another one which had a big hit on it, which was a cover of Behind Blue Eyes. Blue Eyes, yeah. And then they just, after that, I think they just didn't make any new music for 10 years. It's sort of strange. Well, I think, I think, like I think Wes, Wes Borland, the guitarist, left. And he left for about six years. And so when he left, you're like, oh, maybe <laughs> maybe the guy with the musical talent right. in the band is no longer there. Yeah. Because it's okay. not, like you said, it's not really about the lyrics. So who are you comparing them came- to? You're saying they're all identifiable. Um, so, Well, <laughs> so I guess if, them- like, if the Beatles... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I true. Mean, if, yep. if the Beatles were kind of like the first sort of, you know, boy band and you had like the intellectual one and John and the cute one with Paul and the quiet one with George and then the funny one with yes. Ringo... And I'd say like Fred Durst is the kind of shit stirrer with the red cap, and then Wes is the arty one, and then I don't know. I'm sure there's characters. Yeah, I know. the one, other two is one where I'm, be- I'm uh, struggling. <laughs> well, the guy, the the drummer Otto, something Otto. Uh, apparently, he his brother is like a really famous jazz musician or something oh, like right. that. He comes from he comes from some kind of musical pedigree, and then the bass player, I saw him interviewed. All right, well, here's his character. He's suffering from a degenerative back condition, which is making it harder and harder for him to tour. I saw an interview with him, and it was like, Backman, there you go. He's uh, the vertebrae, his vertebrae are deteriorating, and pretty soon he won't be able to stand up or hold his bass guitar anymore. (laughs) But Fred Durst was was like, when he started off, he was... He he was an A&R guy, so he was one of the few pop stars out there who was actually working for Interscope at the same time. So... I guess, I mean, there wouldn't be, how many, like, people, like, celebrities could you say, oh, yeah, they're, they're a performer and they also work in management as well. And, I mean, it's got to be a bit of a conflict of interest, doesn't it? When Interscope, like, okay, what bands are we pushing <laughs> yeah. uh, this year? And Fred's just like, well, you know, Limp Bizkit have got a new album out <laughs> and just slides it across the table. What? So, yeah, I mean, all of that makes it seem like he's, and he's sort of like a smarter businessman than maybe it first comes across. And it's it's kind of strange that he was able to. Normally, you'd think, um, or maybe the, the, this was out at the time, but people would be like, "Oh, he's you know he's kind of fake." And that was, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be like a real death knell for a popular no. uh, rock band if they were inauthentic, sort of thing. Yeah, well, in, as part of my deep dive, um, I found my way to an interview with Eminem from two thousand or something. Because they were like buddy buddy for a while, and then Eminem turned on Limp Biscuit. I believe the term he used um, uh, that uh, uh, Chris Kirkpatrick, you can get your ass kicked worse than those little Limp Biscuit bastards. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and so in this interview with Eminem, he was saying that um, they were all hanging out and they did a, a tour together. And they were all friends, but then Fred started to annoy everyone because he kept pulling out of shows because he had a sore throat, and then. 
Um, Eminem had that beef with uh, uh, Everlast. You know, they went back and forth and they wrote diss songs against each other. And so Eminem was preparing to write um, another diss track and he asked Fred Durst, you know, do you want to be on it? And Fred Durst was like, yeah, 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 you write me the lyrics, I'll come on and I'll say it. And then um, DJ Lethal, who uh, Limp Bizkit stole from House of Pain, said, yeah, yeah, I'll come on and I'll do something as well. And so Eminem booked studio time and he wrote all these disses. And then uh, when it came to turn up, Fred Durst caught up and said, oh, I've got a, I've got a toothache. I can't come in. And, and, and DJ Lethal pulled out as well. Oh. So that really annoyed Eminem. <laughs> and so that's when he said, all right, well, I'm going to diss. Not only am I going to diss Everlast, but you guys have made it to my diss list. <laughs> I don't know if he calls it a distance. It's possibly but. maybe that uh, worked out well for Eminem in the end, um, or maybe he was what started because you know that it was one of those things where they were so big and then they became like a joke band pretty quickly as well. Limp Biscuit, I think. Yeah, and it be, sort of became yeah. uncool very quickly. Maybe that was me yes. growing from sixteen to nineteen or something, but. Well, the, in this this YouTube, there's a I don't know what the channel's called, but it's basically this. Um, I guess he's a music historian, but he's sort of focused more on on rock and metal, and he does like this 20 minute exploration of new metal, and he talks about how sort of at the mid 90s and metal had sort of been fighting off grunge because metal had sort of become a bit of a self parody you know metal had sort of morphed into hair metal and then had gone really commercial with bands like poison and stuff and then you still had your kind of hardcore like thrash and stuff but even metallica were going mainstream and so corn were the first kind of new metal act where they came along and they just um they mixed kind of like dark lyrics, but with really bouncy kind of choruses. It was sort of like had a hip hop or a funk influence, um, but with these really dark, heavy lyrics. And then, um, then Limp Bizkit came along and it became more of like a comedy act. There was sort of more comedy and that kind of self-awareness. But he said, by the time you moved into 2000, metal decided to reassert its seriousness. Like they've, whatever, I, I, don't, I don't know what the subgenre was, but a new subgenre emerged, which is like, no, fuck this. We're not doing any of those bouncy choruses. We're just going, you know, serious. If you're going to be singing about serious stuff, you you play serious. You don't have like a catchy beat. And then the other thing was hip hop changed because hip hop went from gangster rap being the predominant um, to being Southern rap in the early 2000s, which was completely changed the landscape. So to have new metal no longer the metal part of it or the rock part of it no longer sounded legitimate to metal fans and the hip hop part of it no longer sounded legitimate uh, to hip hop fans. So it found itself with no audience. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I got to find this video. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll dig it. I'll go into my search history and I'll send it to you. You can, you can watch it, but yeah, it was really interesting and it makes a lot of sense because if you think about what, Fred Durst was selling. It was like, you know, it was it was kind of gangster rap. But then, you know, when that stopped becoming the most popular form of hip hop in the in the early two thousands and it was no longer had an audience. Yeah, right. Oh, that's that's good. Yeah. I love it when something, you know, you look back and they can like at the time people wouldn't have understood that. But it's only with hindsight that you can go, This is yeah, your timing was so perfect. This is why you exploded, but this is why you Mm. fell away so quick as well. And then the other thing that he said was because um, he talked about Lincoln Park and he does he plays like two songs side by side like early corn side by side with Lincoln Park and he said that I don't really class Lincoln Park as new metal even though they have a lot of the same elements because Lincoln Park is a lot more melodic 
and they're it's not really they sing about angst but the the melody and the beats and stuff they use are not the same kind of heavy sort of metal influence beats and then you listen to Linkin Park you're like oh it is all kind of like soft rock it's kind of it's not light it doesn't have that same kind of like heaviness that you know really really heavy metal yeah. has and then and i guess because they sort of they did they do an album or at least a song with jay-z who was definitely still the a whole album a, like a popular yeah. rapper like yeah. he hadn't fallen out of yeah the trend no no he, they i mean when they did the black album that was that was huge and that was sort of like that was Jay-Z introducing himself to a different audience. You know, he was kind of pretty much entrenched in that hip-hop world. And then by partnering up with Linkin Park, who were not huge, well, big at that stage, but they weren't as big as they were going to be. It was, it was like a mutually beneficial relationship because they both get introduced to different audiences. Yeah. Oh, this, I mean, it feels like you're about to start a whole new spin-off podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd listen but to the it. the thing is, I don't know anything about, like about music really i i'm i'm not i'm not like this I, I hardly like ever download new music or listen to new music or anything but i do get fascinated by um like you sounds like uh, the history of genres like not just in music but like comedy film all that kind of stuff like i love that's the best thing about youtube is you're getting all these kind of historians entertainment historians creating these like video essays yeah. That'll make you go, oh, yeah, okay. So the films of uh, Francis Ford Coppola, he had the uh, most brilliant uninterrupted run from 1971 to 1978 where he had, you know, five films that were not only box office successes but they were also critically acclaimed. That's amazing. Yeah, it it is amazing. At YouTube, pretty much any topic, you'll find someone who at least seems like an expert telling you about Francis Ford Coppola or something similar. Well, that. Well, that's the premise of Do Go On, right? Like, it's like you come in and you give us and talk about a topic that you're an expert on and we'll make fun of you. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm starting to think maybe there's an episode in New Metal. Ah, 100%. But I'm not your guy. I think (laughs) you could find someone who knows more. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure he'd do it. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from, like... Can you sorry? Can you hear that? At the, I thought I thought someone was going up my the stairs. No, no. There's uh, with this apartment we're renting. There, they've been doing construction for the last two days, which is brilliant when you have a an eighteen month old baby that has to take naps in the middle of the day. But it was in the other end of the apartment, so I thought I'd come to the quieter part they of followed the apartment. But I feel like it followed me. Yeah. And he might be a new metal fan. He's, he's got some things he wants oh, to contribute. Yeah. I think the definitely the the trades have uh, not everyone, but they've hung on to a bit of a love for new metal. I reckon you'll definitely on the work sites. You'll so. still hear a bit of it coming out through Triple uh, M and stuff. Well, the one thing I've noticed in my um, deep dive on new metal is in the comment section of all the you know performances and videos and stuff I've watched is a you know they're still really popular and there's a genuine love and there's a lot of guys who or and girls i imagine saying what you said before which is like oh i love this band when i was 16 and i'm really loving rediscovering them so you know it's that thing that sometimes it takes 20 years for people to rediscover or for something to be appreciated like if you look at a lot of the films of you know you know roger corman made these cheap exploitation films in the 60s and 
at the time they were considered trash, you know, and they were made with not many stars and, you know, they were shot in seven days and whatever and just made to turn a quick buck. But nowadays they're revered because not only did they give like James Cameron his start and, you know, like Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola and all these filmmakers who cut their teeth, but there is this genuine admiration for the fact that, oh, you just went out and, and did your own thing. And I feel like if you can create something that lasts or if you're still creating you know, 20 years later, the worm eventually turns. Like if it's really flash in the pan or if it's really meaningless, then it won't last for 20 years. But if people can find it after 20 years and, and have that level of affection, then there must be something to it. Yeah, I, I reckon that's definitely true. You just There seems to be a cycle with uh, music and, I, and probably with films and other forms of entertainment as well. And I reckon it's got something to do with the critics or, you know, the critic class when your thing comes out. You know, a, a lot of producers are in their 20s and 30s. The critics are older. They write it off. But then uh, mm. 20 years later, the kids who were loving it at the time, some of them are now the critics and they're sort of rewriting yeah. the reviews um, uh, more favorably. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I always think about, like, when I was growing up as a nerd and into, like, comic books and all that kind of shit and really having no one to talk about that stuff with, like, pre-internet, apart from, like, two or three guys at my school, you know, we published a weekly comic book Holy newsletter shit. that was routinely mocked by everyone. And, and then, you know, you sort of grow up and it's like the geeks have inherited the earth because all those people who consumed all that entertainment – shamefully and in secret, then either became the media creators or the media consumers. And so with disposable income. And so what was kind of like a fringe interest group is now the most powerful, like superheroes is, you know, probably the most popular genre of entertainment right now. And I think that's entirely based on people just getting older, like all the critics who dismissed it as being, you know, pop culture trash or meaningless, whatever, they're dead yeah. <laughs> or they're too old to write anymore. And, and, and you're sort of getting a backlash to that now, but I'm never too quick to dismiss, you know, like it's that, it's a, it's a sort of rites of passage as you grow out of listening to Triple J, you'll listen to Triple J now and go, what is this fucking shit? I don't know any of this, but I'm not so arrogant as to believe that I know what popular music is. Like, I understand that, you know, in it's just a sound for a different generation. And in, in 20 years' time, if it's still around, then people will be talking about it the same way we're reevaluating new metal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I mean, new metal, I think, to a lot of people is still uh, an embarrassing Shit. joke sort of thing. But, yeah, I think and – mm. I, and, and I was kind of thinking about it that way a month ago, I reckon, if I was thinking about it at yeah. all, which I wasn't. But just in that – in that uh, Mini Cooper with the top down, I felt a genuine <laughs> sense of shame. <laughs> well, is it is it the is it the music itself, or is it the fans that it attracts? Because I think that is half of the criticism of Limp Biscuit is not so much the music, which you know is can be questionable, but it was the douchebags. Yeah, yeah. It was the dudes who put the red cap on backwards and you know would mosh and you know make it an unfriendly environment for people to go to shows. But then I mean that was the interesting thing about that Rolling Stone podcast was that they reckoned that it was in the in their heyday it was pretty much gender balanced their shows and yeah. other new metal bands like Corn and that was dominated by males which was an interesting I I hadn't noticed that. I never saw them. Have you seen that? I think I've. Uh, Did you have you seen that Wood? Oh yeah, I watched that Woodstock thing. I didn't. 
I didn't oh, yeah. think it was the best documentary. I th- the story was amazing right. and the footage is great. Have you seen it? No, I watched the trailer for it. <laughs> it gave me anxiety yeah. <laughs> looking at it. Because, I, I look, I, I think my days of going to music festivals, well, at least, you know, multi-day music festivals have long gone. And I've done plenty of festivals in my time, but... I always got to day three of a festival and I'd be like, I was the guy's like, oh, fuck, like, we've got one more day to go. Like, I don't know how I'm going to endure this. So the idea of watching a festival, of watching a doco all about a festival that just goes to shit is like my worst nightmare. Right. Yeah, no, it it would be, it was pretty anxiety inducing. I watched it as I was um, uh, going through the the fever of the the vaccine first dose. So it was already, it was like a pretty hectic fever dream. Stressed out already. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just thought it was, I don't know, the, the talking heads, um, yeah, they just, they made some funny, conc- took some funny conclusions from it. One one of them was talking about how they're like, you know, it's all, the, nobody asked for this. Big, loud rock music uh, with rap lyrics over the top. No one was asking for this. And they're showing a documentary of hundreds of thousands of people clearly asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> bought like, a ticket that for doesn't it. make any sense and then uh one said um how um they're like they're angry this these guys are angry and they have no reason to be and they don't know why they are i'm like that's interesting but then the same commentator later said um clearly this was uh in rebellion to the cost of uh water and um and they were burning a lamborghini or a mercedes saying, hey, we don't think this greed, this is a rebellion against greed. <laughs> but like half an hour ago, you said it wasn't, they had nothing to be angry about. I don't know why. It's so weird that in this same <laughs> documentary, it just seemed to, like like you needed to do a little edit there, try and figure out, you know, one train of thought and just keep it consistent, at least from the same talking heads. If you wanted both of those, like, like both of those are fun lines, fun conclusions to draw, but maybe give those lines. It felt like they were being delivered these lines almost. I remember the the closest experience I ever had to something like that was I went to see Guns N' Roses in 1993. I've heard Park. this is an iconic show, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it was um, that was back in the day when like Axel was famous for like you know he just turn up whenever he wanted, and so I think. It was an all-day concert, and it was like a lineup of, I don't know, I think it was like Rose Tattoo, Pearls and Swine, Skid Row, and then Gunners were obviously the headliners. And I think I was, me and my mates were only about 13 or 14 at the time, and I remember it was the day before we started year 10, and we'd all got permission somehow from our parents to go to this concert, you know, on a Sunday. Um, you know, we got dropped off at Flinders Street Station and we all took shuttle buses out there. And I remember when we arrived at Flinders Street Station, we were like, oh man, we might be out of our element here because it was filled with like some old school headbangers, like just Bogan Central. And um, we got on the bus and I remember we got out there and it's my first ever, like I'd been to sort of concerts, but it was my first like festival experience concert where it was just like, you know, weeds everywhere and people tripping balls. And it's just like, but like thousands, I don't know how many people you can cram into Calder Park, but it felt like it was hundreds of thousands. It was probably maybe 40 or 50,000. And I remember we got in there and it was one of those Melbourne summer's days where it was like bone dry and blisteringly hot, like 40 degrees during the day. And we, because it was our first festival experience, we hadn't 
like bought water or any supplies. You know, I don't think we're wearing sunscreen, just no hats or anything like that. So like eight kids, so we all rock up and we we get into our area, and um, uh, people pretty start like fainting all around us and stuff. And so we're going up, and they had were selling water for like twelve bucks a bottle, like for like a like a six hundred a six hundred mil bottle of Mount Franklin is like ten or twelve bucks, and this was like nineteen ninety three. Dodgy. And then, um, and so we all sort of chipped in and, and we bought some water, and so we're passing this bottle around, and then. Um, some, there was this, uh, then it started to rain and the temperature dropped by like 20 degrees and suddenly it was freezing cold and wet and people were sliding down this mud hill. And I just remember, uh, like someone like screaming out mud fight and turned around and it was close to like a thousand people. So 500 on this hill and 500 down the bottom, just flinging mud, <laughs> like something from the Simpsons, just flinging mud back and forth at each other. And I remember just like having my hands up going, I can't see. Cause every time I open my eyes, I get like, you know, shower with mud. And this, the day's not even like halfway done by then. And then, um, someone busted into like a bore water drain. And so this geyser of water starts shooting up there and people are running over and filling their water bottles and they're over the loudspeaker like, do not drink the bore water. Like it's untreated, you know, there's sewage and stuff like that. And then that water starts (laughs) flying down. So suddenly we're standing in mud and we're still only at like the second warm up act (laughs) by now. And then by the time Gunners finally got to stage, which I must admit, was a pretty amazing show. Like I do remember it quite clearly. They had like inflatable monsters and um, they played all the hits. It was great. But then it gets to like, must've been midnight when they shut it all down and you've got 30,000 people trying to get on like you know six shuttle buses back to Flint Street Station. And I remember us like staggering towards the pickup point and I was so dehydrated that I was like just looking for something I could drink and I saw a bottle on the ground. And I, to this day, I do not know what it was filled with, but I just picked it up and sculled it. Like it might've been piss. It might've been acid. I don't know. Whatever it was, I needed to put liquid in my body. We didn't get home till like, I think it was like five, four or 5 a.m. Had to like, I got home, I had about two hours sleep and then had to get showered and, and go to school. Oh, the next shit. Day. <laughs> it was a wild experience. That I mean, that feels like it. If, if they had enough cameras there, that would be a, a pretty good doco in itself. Yeah, well, I remember um, they did a when Will was doing Triple M with Eddie McGuire. They did like it was the twenty year anniversary or thirty year anniversary of that concert, and they actually got me to dial in and share my recollections, which was kind of surreal because I'm telling that story, and then Eddie McGuire is chipping in, <laughs> fact checking because he was working as a journalist uh. at the time. So he's like, "Yep, yep, that's right. They were charging this mountain. Yep, yep, that's right. There was a board there. The, they broke into the drains, and yep, that's right. You know, <laughs> I was like, okay, well." Oh, my memory's correct. Eddie's uh, Eddie's ticking this off. Backing you up. Did he? What did he say about the inflatable <laughs> yeah. monsters? Yep, yep, yep. They were inflatable monsters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't mention King oh, Kong. Thank fucking God. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, Matt, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wind this up, but before we do, uh, it would be remiss of me uh, not to talk about the Saints. And uh, we're going to get into this. I'm going to do a follow-up uh, My Club with you at some point over the summer. But I just thought uh, for anyone listening out there who's a Two Guys, One Cup fan, they, they probably want to get your – just give me your thumbnail sketch of this season. Oh. Uh, how, what are your feelings now that it's all done? Well, talking about living the roller coaster, that's what our, our season really well, – I mean, it was funny because round one felt we had so many injuries. We were playing away against the Giants 
in the rain. We didn't have we didn't have a recognised ruckman in the team, and we somehow we got it done. It felt like oh, that's the perfect start. Yeah. We've stolen a win here. Yeah, isn't it? We just undermanned. It. What a great way to start. You know, twenty we twenty one games to go. We're in a really good spot, and it sort of all fell apart from there. But um, I think yeah, I remember thinking like even in round f- when did we play the the bombers? Uh, it's like round three. Yeah, it was early, and I and the the run after that was all like top four or five teams from last year. I'm like, we this is a very early must win game, <laughs> and uh, and I I had a it was during comedy fest. I had an afternoon gig, so I missed the start of it, and I came out when we were already down by 45 points in the second quarter or something. Like, oh no, wheels are yeah. falling off. And we sort of, we recovered a little games. bit. Yeah. Well, after the bye, I think that there was enough green shoots after the bye for you to go, okay, maybe it's not all like a disaster. But this was the first season since, I think, 2017 where there were games that I switched off after a quarter. Essendon was the first one where I could just tell what was happening, switched it off, uh, and the Bulldogs yeah. game. Like that that Bulldogs game, I was like, I don't need to watch this. I was watching um, the Bulldogs but we went- with my parents. My mum goes to Carlton. And she and I, mm. we, we're all, uh, up at a caravan park watching this caravan, and I'm I'm going. I the first quarter is going. Mum's enjoying the, the us losing a bit too much. She's not. She's doing it politely, but you know when you you're losing yeah. and and people who aren't invested like you are chipping in a bit too lighthearted. I'm like, I can't handle. Can we watch something else? I'm not ready. Yeah, too, I think it might have even <laughs> been before quarter time. I'd I'd switched over. We were watching like rugby union or something yeah. instead. <laughs> that one was that was brutal, and it felt like what's going well, on. And it feels like we apparently we uh, really focused on the defensive game after that, and it I think sort of brought it back a little bit in the following weeks, and then after the bye, especially. Really, it was only you know that Adelaide yeah. game we shouldn't have lost. And then you throw in one yeah. of the other games we shouldn't have lost, Sydney Cut. and Sydney, or Geelo- one Sydney, of the Geelong yeah. ones, probably the first Geelong one. And we dropped, and we dropped Carlton, and we could have beat yeah. West Coast. Yeah, I mean it was Port a Adelaide season of what is. So I kind of feel like, yeah, we just played catch up all year, and we never had our best list. And I think that what I'm hoping is it's a year of learning. It's like, well, they had the one out of the box last year, so they know they can compete. This year was a reality check where a few players have worked out. Like I feel Dan Butler was kind of symptomatic of the year where he was just trying to play like he did last year and do all the flashy things. And then after the bye, you notice his yes. tackle numbers went up. He was applying yeah. forward pressure and he had a, and he was playing much better footy because he was just playing less selfish. He also had, um, a, a, because he basically invited him in, he had Higgins come in to play a pretty similar role to him. Not, you know, so there yeah. was... Higgins well. was great. So, I mean, that, Too, that probably didn't help Butler either in some ways. But I think that yeah. they'll, you know, continue to play better together. And and King, after the bye, yeah, he exciting. turned it. He, his season of two halves, totally different. Started kicking straight. Yeah, it's very... Marking everything. That's, that's, the, that, that's the big thing to take away isn't it it's like i'm just can't wait to yeah. see him play next year i'm very excited you and i actually attended a game together this year um which is a, the geelong game and it was it was such a familiar st kilda experience i mean it, we can laugh about it now it wasn't funny at the time 
But we were dominating them for the whole game. And I think that first quarter, we kicked like seven behind straight, was it? Like we could not kick a goal. Now, after the game, uh, you and your cousin Rhino went off and me and my mate Nick uh, went back to his place. And Nick and I spent the whole walk back to his place just like, what the fuck happened? (laughs) We just couldn't get over it. And it went from being in the depths of like despair to laughing. Like we were in hysterics by the time we got back to his house. And we were like, you know what we should do? Let's just watch the first quarter again and just and just and just enjoy it for the comedy. And so we did, and it was like we watched it and we were just <laughs> laughing, just laughing at it. it was hilarious how many shots we missed on goal, how many chances we had to put them away, and we just kept missing. And then it gets to the end of the first quarter and he sort of stops the the, the tape and he turns to me and he's gone, Have you watched uh, The Good Place? And I'm like, no, no, I haven't. It's like, hey, well, spoilers. He's gone, you know. So the first few seasons, it's all about they're in heaven. And then the big twist is you realize you're actually in hell. And he's gone, I've been thinking about it. And he's gone, I think we're in hell. (laughs) He said, I think you and I are in hell. And we keep going to these Saints games together. And we keep thinking we're enjoying them. And we keep getting sold this sense of hope. And then this happens. But it's hell. We're trapped in hell. (laughs) That makes sense. It was quite a sober moment. We're in the bad place. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Because <laughs> it's teasing and it's hope uh, and they get us close and it, it's it's a different kind of uh, punishment every season. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yet we keep And they keep up, getting so us I don't know back who's to, to a blame. place of hope again, which is uh, funnily enough, our yeah. fear with Cooper Sharman. He's kicked multiple goals every game. It. You got King coming back. Gresham yeah. didn't play a game this Highmore. year. Highmore, uh, Patton to come back in. Connolly playing well, Burns right. is exciting. Bytel looked good yesterday. Two. Look, Ma- we're suckers. <laughs> Marshall's we becoming one of the one of the best rucks in the comp, and Ryder will be back. You know, full pre-seasons, all these things. Hanabry played the last two games, played pretty well yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You sound like a loser. <laughs> I am Matt. a loser. You sound like a loser. <laughs> and there's only one reason for that is because I grew up in Moorabbin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll talk about it more. We'll talk about it more on the uh, summer edition of Two Guys One Cup My Club when I get you back on to do your uh, autopsy of the Saints season. Um, but thank you for doing Fof Up. It was so great to have you on. I'd love to have you on again. Uh, hopefully, next time we talk, uh, uh, everyone's out of lockdown and when it's less paranoid dreams, and uh, we can maybe do another deep dive <laughs> on new metal or maybe find a completely different Sounds subject good. to talk about. In the meantime, um, is there anything you want to promote? Podcasts and so uh, forth. The yeah, I mean, the Do Go On podcast has been going well, um, but the Primates, the last few episodes of Primates, I've sort of, I sort of stopped doing it as a weekly podcast, and now I just do it uh, when inspiration Whenever. hits, and the last few episodes have, have become a little series where, based on this photo of a gorilla statue with slides coming out from where its nipples would tits. be. Gorilla, gorilla tits. Gorilla tits, yeah. Yeah, I so it's, that one. <laughs> uh, it's, call, it's been dubbed the... Uh, the gorilla the ape titty slide and we're <laughs> we're trying now to figure out where it came from and it's it's opened up this big story we've found there's they're all over the world we think we're narrowing in on spain as the uh the epicenter of the ape titty slides <laughs> and we've got a few leads with a guy from new jersey has gone and uh he went and got photos in front of one this week wow so i think we're cracking this case wide open well, you can check out Primates and do go on. I'll put the links in the episode description below. Matt, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie.